Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it's Virginia Heffernan. Quick note about today. This episode is a favorite from our archives. If you were a Slate Plus member, you would have heard it the day it came out. That's because, as you may know, we've been making about one in every four Trumpcast episodes exclusive to Slate Plus members only. So to make sure you hear every episode on Trumpcast in full and on the original air date, sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Don't be behind again. Now, on to the show. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know enough about it yet. I want to be very clear, though, that our intelligence community and police are focused on extremism of every kind. It's not obvious to me why there's a racial component in this. I've followed it as closely as I'd most news consumers, and I, I don't see that the, the guy's race is relevant to anything. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast from Los Angeles, California. I'm Leon Krause. Almost 18 years ago, on 9-11, I was trying to understand what had happened. Not only as a journalist, but of course as a human being. I remember I met with a friend of mine, an older gentleman, a writer as well, who had and still has a talent to look at things with a wider and wiser lens. We spoke about the attack itself, the sheer horror of the attack. But then we also spoke about the way the attack had been witnessed in real time by the whole world. By the time the towers fell, I'm sure you remember, most TV stations around the world were broadcasting live. We all saw thousands of people die live right in front of us. It was the first moment the whole world was scared at the same precise instant, my friend told me. And he was right, of course. Just like the Apollo 11 moon landing probably meant the first worldwide moment of true global communion and awe over human achievement, the September 11 attacks were the first moment when all of us witnessed in real time how deeply unspeakably evil humankind can be. Almost two decades have passed since then. It's, it's incredible. Almost 20 years. And then on March 15th, we all witnessed evil live again. A man wearing a camera went into a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand and began shooting and streaming live on social media. There, live on Facebook, the brutal murder of 50 innocent people. The video was viewed 4,000 times before the site took it down, but it lived on. Over the next 24 hours, Facebook had to remove over one and a half million versions of that horrendous Christchurch video. In one way or another, in edited versions or mere pictures, the video is still lurking around the internet, and it will be there for a while, perhaps forever. That's the nature of the web. This, of course, raises questions about social media, but mostly it raises questions about what we, what the world in general is doing to combat white supremacist terrorism and gun violence. 
The government of New Zealand responded to the latter swiftly and wisely. It will ban all military-style semi-automatic weapons from the country. Period. That's it. End of debate. And that's the same response, the brave response, if only we had that in the United States. As to what to do with the growing threat of white supremacist terrorism in America and abroad, well, that's a different matter, but certainly it's no less urgent. That's exactly what we will discuss today on the show. But first, the tweets. I don't know who Joaquin Castro is other than the lesser brother of a failed presidential candidate, 1%, who makes a fool of himself every time he opens his mouth. Joaquin is not the man that his brother is, but his brother, according to most, is not much. Keep fighting, Joaquin. Just watched a world-class loser, Tim O'Brien, who I haven't seen or spoken to in many years, and knows nothing about me except that he wrote a failed hit piece book about me 15 years ago, fired like a dog from other jobs, saw him on Lion Brian Williams' Trump Slam Show, Bad TV. I am so amazed that MSNBC and CNN keep putting on over and over again people that have no idea what I'm all about. And yet they speak as experts on Trump. Same people since long before the 2016 election. And how did that work out for the haters and the losers? Not well. As your president, one would think that I would be thrilled with our very strong dollar. I am not. The Fed's high interest rate level, in comparison to other countries, is keeping the dollar high, making it more difficult for our great manufacturers like Caterpillar, Boeing, John Deere, our car companies, and others to compete on a level playing field. With substantial Fed cuts, there is no inflation and no quantitative tightening. The dollar will make it possible for our companies to win against any competition. We have the greatest companies in the world. There is nobody even close. But unfortunately, the same cannot be said about our Federal Reserve. They have called it wrong at every step of the way. And we are still winning. Can you imagine what would happen if they actually called it right? Ishan Tharoor is a reporter who brilliantly covers foreign affairs, geopolitics and history for The Washington Post. Ishan, welcome to Trumpcast. Pleasure to be here. So you recently wrote a very insightful and honestly painful analysis of what happened in New Zealand. So let me ask you, what's behind Brenton Harrison Tarrant's motives for this unspeakable attack? He saw himself as playing a role in a larger conspiracy of sorts against whites. How so? Yes, I think it's important to stress that there's nothing particularly original or insightful about his view of the world. He, If you read his manifesto or seen images of the strange markings across the web, his weaponry that he used. He, he referenced all these mostly Balkan soldiers who, or warriors who fought against the armies of the, of the Ottoman Empire. He really inhabited in his mind a kind of morbid historical fantasy of being 
this warrior of the white race of Christendom to a certain extent, although he's not particularly religious, locked in this existential clash of civilizations with the invaders, the infidels, Muslims, and so on. That bore itself out in the massacres that he perpetrated, and you also see it very clearly in his radicalization. He has drawn comparisons to Anders Bering Breivik, who killed 77 people in 2011 in Norway. Breivik was also, as you know, motivated by xenophobia, by racism. How does Breivik and Tarrant fit into the wider narrative of white supremacist terrorism? These are now very important figures in in this canon of terrorists that we have come to endure at the moment. Breivik, I mean, and Tarrant clearly was somewhat inspired by Breivik. He, again, very similarly to Tarrant, was also fixated on the Balkans. His manifesto was dated 2083, which is a reference to the 400th anniversary of the Battle of Vienna, the Siege of Vienna, where the Ottomans were repelled from the gates of that Austrian city. So again, he was inhabiting this kind of historical fantasy of fighting the armies of Islam. And both of them, of course, you know, drew from a whole body of not so fringe uh, hard right nationalist writings, you know. Breivik, in his manifesto, was citing relatively well-known American commentators, like Pamela Geller and so on, who dabble in Islamophobia. None of the ideas in their manifesto are original in any way. And what's more alarming, I mean, when, when Breivik perpetrated his, his act, you could consign it to being the, the writings of a raving lunatic on the fringe of the fringe. Whereas now, in the political moment that we're in right now, <laughs> you can even draw dotted lines. I wouldn't say a direct line but a dotted line from where Tarant is sitting and the views that he has to even views inculcated by people in the White House. Would you say that these people are after some sort of holy war, dash ethnic cleansing? Is that sort of like what makes up their insane ideology? There's clearly a kind of proto-fascism to all of this. They believe in a monocultural state. They believe they have a sense of this fixation on the white race. Of course, Tarrant, in his manifesto, focused on this idea of the great replacement, this belief that white birth rates are slipping and immigration is going to eventually lead to a kind of genocide, right? This kind of white genocide that they claim is happening, which is no statistical factual basis whatsoever. I think it's not so holy as much as it's ethnically driven. It's an ethnic nationalism, ethno-fascism, really. In a way, do you think we are witnessing sort of a suggestion that we should all regress a thousand years to the time of the Crusades? I mean, I think there's a desire on their part to reduce it to that. Not that different from, say, the ISIS that, that also has its own kind of writings and, and fantasies about waging war against Rome and all that. So there is a, a certain kind of symmetry there between their views and, and ISIS views. Both believe in a kind of existential conflict. At the same time, I think it's important to stress, though, that there's a whole world of medievalists and academics and people who actually know the histories that these white nationalists claim to resurrect in some ways who point out that the white nationalist reading of these histories is so far from the truth, right? This clash of civilizations wasn't even taking place then as much as we think it is now. I was precisely going to point out that comparison between what we're seeing now, at least in part with these sort of people, with Al-Qaeda's motives and ISIS as well, Bin Laden, Ayman al-Sawahiri, and even people like Egyptian writer Said Qutb, who was the intellectual inspiration for many of those who then formed organizations like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, wanted and still want the restoration of the caliphate. Right. I mean, I think extremist violence of all forms requires this sense of epic struggle, the sense of being locked in, as I said before, a kind of existential peril that requires totalizing definitive violence, right? Decisive violence. 
So, of course, there are clear symmetries between the worldviews of these white supremacist terrorists as well and, and jihadists to act out their ideologies in similar fashions. I do think, though, that there are limits to the parallel because, you know, on a certain level, it's almost more of a threat for societies here because specifically I'm saying the the white supremacist view is more of a threat because it's, it has a much better chance of becoming more mainstream here than it would than you know ISIS is represented by a minority of a minority of a minority whereas you know the ideas in Tarrant's manifesto this idea of the great replacement this idea that cultural marxists are are ruining society this idea that that um you know Muslims and immigrants uh, fundamentally will never be able to assimilate in our cult- in our cultures. Uh, all of that has much greater traction in the societies we live in uh, than anything that ISIS believes. And that risk is so clear that we have uh, nativists currently occupying the White House. Yes, I mean, that's certainly the view of many of uh, President Trump is that he has, of course, he's not, you can't blame him for what happened in Christchurch, but you can point out the extent to which he and some of his lieutenants have winked at white white supremacism and white nationalism, have not done very much to to push against the narratives in play here, and of course have emboldened the far right, both in the US and elsewhere, with their rhetoric. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about President Trump's response to the New Zealand attack, like he has done before with precisely white nationalists and supremacists. Trump was mostly dismissive. Even after the killer, this man Tarrant that you've described, identified Trump, and I'm quoting in his manifesto, as a symbol of white identity and renewed purpose. That's right. I mean, he was, he first of all downplayed white nationalism. Then in the same day when this happens, you know, when a, a white supremacist terrorist goes out, says he's killing invaders, Trump spends a bit of his own time publicly condemning, you know, talking about the quote-unquote invasion on the southern border, not really recognizing the, 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 the obvious echoes of his rhetoric elsewhere. Obviously, as many have commented before in the past, Trump has often leapt to condemn, whenever there's even a hint of jihadist violence, a stabbing in, in somewhere in Europe, an explosion somewhere in Europe, Trump has leapt to not only condemn that, but also then argue that this justifies his efforts to push against uh, Muslim immigration. Whereas in this instance, it's an incredibly meek response. And the New Zealand prime minister herself, you know, apparently she told President Trump on the phone when he asked what he could do, she said, please express support for all Muslim communities. And he has certainly not done that in the days since. This is a big question, of course, but how do you explain it? Is Trump himself, you think, racist? Is he a real part of this hateful movement? Or is it just one more example of his sinister, cynical pragmatism? This is his base, and that's that. How do you explain Trump's position, not only currently with this horrible attack, but in general his attitude towards white supremacists? I mean, it's hard for me to declare Trump racist or not. I think he does have a very clear track record of casual bigotry in various forms in his throughout his political career and his business career that preceded it. His defenders, of course, would say that he has also a huge record of being very, you know, colorblind. Uh, so I don't really want to get bogged down into that debate. I do think it's very curious that he has gone out of his way at moments when 
it would seem politically much easier to play nice, condemn white supremacy, make, you know, any kind of symbolic gesture towards Muslims, that he's avoided those moments. He's he's doubled down in some ways. He's He kind of reflexively always wants to pander to his base, present the image that, of himself that he wants his base to recognize and celebrate. And it's part of, you know, what's been his consistent, divisive character in this presidency. I don't know if it's purely strategic. I don't know if it's purely ideological, but it's somewhere in between. So you think it's in between it being a real personal belief of Trump or and electoral pragmatism? I would assume so. I mean, I, I can't begin to, to really, I mean, I, I think there are other journalists who are much closer to the White House who'd have a better sense of his thinking here. Uh, but from everything I've heard and everything I've seen, I, I think it's clear that he has an ideological bone in, in this and he has, you know, for quite some time, especially around Muslims, uh, recognized that this is uh, a thread that he can pluck at in Western politics. And, and, and I think he has recognized that both ideologically and politically, this is something that matters to him. Is this sort of attack, what we saw in New Zealand, a direct product of nativism? And by nativism, I mean not only American nativism, but the larger nativist movement worldwide. How politically powerful are these nativist movements across the globe, really? I think it's it's important to recognize it as a global phenomenon, but it's also important to not lump everything into one kind of undifferentiated camp. Yes, absolutely, we are seeing in many different forms the ascendance of, in Western societies of a kind of far-right, white nationalist, yes, even white supremacist politics taking hold among certain corners. In Europe, you know, you're, you're getting these mobilizations happening, but also you're seeing it in the political landscape. You're seeing electoral politics of the far-right I mean, we'll see what happens in the May in the May parliamentary elections in Europe, but you're going to see probably significant gains for far right parties that, at least in terms of ideas, not actions, in terms of their ideas, are not far away from don't hold beliefs that are that dissimilar to what Tarrant articulated in his manifesto. So I think it's important to recognize a, a much greater trend that Tarrant was not a lone wolf in the sense that he's this kind of outlying figure. He is emerged in a in a context where there are plenty of others saying the exact same thing as him. And where there is, especially online, there is a world where you can get radicalized rather easily and really stew in your hatred. Now, obviously, most people who believe what Tarrant believes aren't going to go around killing people, but he's drawing from an existing discourse that's getting more and more fraught and more and more prevalent. Let's take a proactive turn. How do we fight this? Let's begin with social media. You mentioned it just now. What steps has Facebook taken, and do you think those steps are enough? So Facebook is is attempting to, uh, of course, uh, crack down on proliferation of images related to this. Obviously, in the aftermath of the attack, Tarrant really wants to be a social media star and managed to succeed, if briefly, in getting this really chilling, awful video of his killings circulated everywhere online. Social media companies, of course, moved to crack down on that, I think, relatively effectively, but the damage was done. In terms of cracking down on speech, that's a much harder and trickier subject. In Europe, you have many governments that have much more clear-cut hate speech laws that would be able to push against groups that on online groups that, that mobilize in certain ways using hate speech. In the U.S., that's much more difficult. I think in terms of countering this, we do have to take our hats off for, for the way the New Zealand government has gone about it so far. I think Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has seemed to be a real model of both sympathy and resolve. Her fate, you know, you look at her, she was this, she was the picture of, you know, both New Zealand's grief, but also its resolve. She, she uh, extended a, a genuine hand to the Muslim community, made them recognize imme immediately that she saw them as part of, as us, as one of us. Uh, and she condemned Tarrant as a, as, you know, in and of, 
I mean, she made the point that Tarrant was was the invader, not the Muslims. So on a rhetorical level, she's been really great and really firm. And you've seen that across the board in New Zealand, people rally around their Muslim and immigrant communities. And then, of course, in terms of policy, it's also been rather impressive to see how New Zealand has achieved something relatively positive by channeling a moment of real tragedy and division and grief into genuine political policy and reform. I think that's that's another good step, too. Do you think that in social media we have effective counter-narratives or narratives that can be as effective to counter this sort of vicious, toxic indoctrination that we see going on? I keep going back to this idea in other episodes of Trumpcast. I've touched upon that even when it comes to a 2020 election. The idea of story. Do you think there's a clear enough story to counter that toxic narrative? I think, unfortunately, what we've seen from social media is that the way it's incentivized is all about polarization. It's all about a push toward extremes. And the conversations that get attention, that get traffic, are often conversations predicated around outrage, predicated around some insult or the other, predicated around profound grievance. And so I don't think on social media it's very easy to <laughs> have a, a narrative of conciliation tolerance, consensus-building narrative, a nuance, of course, and <laughs> forget about nuance, but even just in terms of conciliation, yeah, it, it, it's, it's very difficult to have that effectively counter the, the tendencies that get exacerbated by social media. Let me ask you uh, something from a wider perspective. Nativism and ethno-nationalism, political parties and ideas are on the rise, indeed, in the world. Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil's far-right president, just visited the White House. You've written mm -hmm. about that encounter as well. Immigration, movement of refugees will likely not stop in the coming century. Climate change will likely make both even more frequent. So from a wider perspective, a more practical perspective, not only about narrative and story and communication of ideas, but from the most practical point of view, what can be done to counter what we're seeing, the rise of these hateful ideologies? I mean, on the practical level, parties that don't have those hateful ideologies have to win elections and win them decisively. And I think there are various circumstances that surround Bolsonaro's rise. I, I think he's already uh, in a presidency, in just in the few, first few months of his presidency, he's facing troubles. I think, I think it's very tempting, especially for, uh, for liberals in the West to to see the, the emergence of far-right politics, of illiberal strongmen, as these great kind of spectral bugbears, these great boogeymen. But I think we do a disservice to the establishment status quo that has existed to imagine that it's as vulnerable as, as sometimes it's made out to be. You know, these elections that are happening in Europe, of course, everyone's talking about the far-right parties winning a certain number of seats, but they're never going to be more than 20 to 30% of European politics, and even that, and perhaps not even that much. So I think it's important to always recognize the extent to which these forces, though they seem so ascendant and so dominant in the conversation, they aren't as powerful as sometimes we tend to make them out to be in the media. In your recent piece, you conclude by raising a fascinating debate. You suggest that part of the challenge is whether or not we should give these ideas, nativist ideas, nativist intellectuals, air on mainstream media. Do you feel these ideas, their ideas should be debated normally, just like any other idea? Or should we denounce all of this as hate speech aimed at normalizing ethnic cleansing? I'm not for I'm not for censoring speech, and uh, I, I think you know this. Uh, this is a separate question, I think. But you know, you saw Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister. She specifically said she doesn't even want to talk, mention the name of the the suspect in the Christchurch attacks because she doesn't want to even give that 
that the, the memory of his attack, oxygen. It's more about remembering the victims. I think there is a certain poignancy to that. There's a certain you know strength in, in trying to downplay this person wanted to make himself this great white nationalist hero or white nationalist figure. And the New Zealand prime minister at least wants to nip his notoriety in the bud. But I think when it comes to these discourses, the discourses, you know, what we're talking about in terms of airing white nationalist arguments and giving it oxygen, I think it's important not to mainstream it. It's important to interrogate the ideas that, that are being bandied about because light is often the greatest disinfectant in these issues. But I think it's also important to do it responsibly, to do it thoroughly, to do it in a way that doesn't legitimate these ideas, but really puts them rigorously, debate, uh, interrogates them and hopefully dispels them. And that's a job for journalists. And that's a job that at times I think we in the media have failed at. Yeah, I was going to say that the intolerance should be debated responsibly. I completely agree, but that's a fine line, especially when you mm. think about mm. how we've dealt with hate speech just in recent years. Yes, I think, of course, it's obviously going to be a fine line. I think there's also a lot of bad faith arguments about liberal unwillingness to debate these ideas. There are times in which, yes, I don't think you should need to debate the great replacement theory or other kind of far-right fantasies. But I think it's also important to not be afraid of debating them and not be afraid of calling out their fallacies. Finally, let me ask you this. How should this issue be debated in 2020? What should Democrats do when it comes to this issue? How should they deal with this? There were many voices after what happened in Christchurch that basically demanded that the wide, wide Democratic field that might end up being almost 20 people bring this issue into center stage. What do you think? Well, first of all, I'm a reporter in the newsroom of the Washington Post. I'm not about to be giving a... Cons no, I'm, not, I'm no consultant to the Democrats. But I do think there should be less timidity around this issue. This is something, you know, you've seen figures on the right, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, exploit all sorts of issues that have nothing to do with their political opponents, whether it's jihadism, whether it's Syrian refugees or immigration questions to, you know, really kind of try to condemn their opponents. Here we have a very clear link ideologically between you, know, you have a white supremacist claiming Donald Trump as an inspiration. As, as a symbol of white identity and renewed purpose, as he said. I think politically it would be foolish not to bring it up. Obviously, President Trump has his own arguments against that comparison and being drawn into this debate. But it is important to be very clear about the racial politics of the moment. It's important to be very clear about how alarming some of the White House's rhetoric has been over the past two years in terms of both the character of the United States, in terms of the way it, it views places elsewhere, the, the rhetoric around quote-unquote shithole countries. I think these are all things that should not be normalized if you're a, you know, a fair-minded person of good conscience and that any political candidate trying to go up against Trump should be able to talk about it. Do you think the Republican Party has understood the urgency of the current cultural moment when it comes to this particular issue? It doesn't seem to be the case. You know, this is not a party that is about to break ranks. It's, this is not a party that seems to be willing to reform itself or push against the tendencies that are surrounding this White House. And no, I think, you know, I think it's important to think about the Republican Party as a far right party. And I say this as, and as neutral a possible way that it has. I mean, economically, it may not be like the far right parties in Europe, but culturally and increasingly politically, It's taking on the trappings of these parties. And that's also part of the narrative that is less discussed in this country and maybe should be more discussed. Ishan, great to have you with us. My pleasure. Thank you. 
And that's our Trumpcast for today. Please, please do tell us what you think. We are on Twitter. I'm at Leon Krause, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E. And the show, as always, is at Real Trumpcast. Before you go, please don't forget to sign up for Slate Plus. Today is the day to do it. It's only $35 for the first year. You'll get all of Slate's uh, podcasts ad-free, fun perks, and honestly, best of all, you'll be supporting our work in these very challenging times in America and abroad. So go to slate.com slash trumpcastplus. That's slate.com slash trumpcastplus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Miliana del Rio. John D. Domenico is our great voice of Donald J. Trump. Find him on Twitter at johnnyd23. I'm Leon Krause from Los Angeles, California. Gracias por escuchar Trumpcast. What the fuck is going on at the Federal Fucking Reserve? Why don't these people listen? They're making me look bad, and I really can't stand that. Who do these people, honestly, who do they think they are? No one at the Federal Reserve is elected. Nobody. But yet they seem to be running the show. Let's get rid of the Federal Reserve. I am against any type of supremacy, white supremacy, the born supremacy, 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 any kind of supremacy. I don't think white supremacy is the problem. I think it's video games, video games. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.